Bam Blam was a music fanzine published in Dunbar, Scotland by Brian Hogg between 1975 and 1982. It covered only the cream of 60s rock and pop and was an acknowledged influence on Mark Perry's pioneering punk scene, Sniff and Glue. None of that boilerplate captures the almost indescribable specialness of this mag. The band histories and discographies are done with utmost care. The layout is simple and just right. Most important are the words. A delicate, limpid prose that's personal without being diaristic. Music journalist John Savage likens Brian's style to haiku, writing to be relished. After Bambalam, Brian enjoyed a busy career writing liner notes and producing retrospective albums. His first book, All That Ever Mattered, The History of Scottish Rock and Pop, is the definitive study of exactly that. In 2019, he published Cosmopolitan Scum, Edinburgh, The Arts and the Counterculture, a hefty wide-angle tribute to the city's rich alternative arts and music scene since the late 40s, with music providing a kind of through line. When we discovered that the last part of our interview didn't record, Brian graciously agreed to a redo the following week. His speech is animated by warmth, humility, and a true fan's enthusiasm for music of all kinds. You'll also notice Brian doesn't revel in nostalgia. Chatting with him was a real treat for this fan, as I hope it is for you. Brian, I wonder if you could take us back to the Edinburgh of your youth, how you got into music and your musical tastes. Yeah, well, I mean, I was a, as I know, as I was a, I was an only child, um, which which perhaps had quite a bit to do with it. Uh, I was brought up in a quite a strict Presbyterian factory, so, uh, factory uh, family, <laughs> so that um, when Sundays came around, I wasn't allowed out to play any, you know, any of that kind of stuff. And uh, so listening to the radio, and as I said, as an only child, was was uh, was uh, how I passed most Sundays, and that's how I discovered you know, Pick of the Pops, um, which used to be on a, on a Sunday afternoon, whereby you got all the singles that are coming to the charts that week, uh, some new releases, an album track, and then the top ten, and that became required listening for me when I was uh, when I was still at primary school, and so that was really what kind of kindled my interest, and then discovered Radio Luxembourg, which on a, again on a Sunday, uh, used to play all of the uh, new releases, and so I used to listen to that religiously on a, on a, on a Sunday night, uh, and 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 that from that moved on to to, to going to clubs, uh, going to going to beat clubs, which I went to when I was quite young. I went to started going to them when I was about fourteen. Who were you seeing at the time? Uh, uh, live, the the Edinburgh bands that I saw live that that, that I really liked uh, were the the, the Moonrakers. Uh, the Beachcombers and the uh, Hippo people—they were the kind of the early ones uh, that I saw. That would be about 65, 66, and then sixty-seven when the the, the mode of the music started to change a little bit more. Uh, there was the Jury, uh, who then uh, became right now in the kind of progish band, writing on the wall. Uh, but really, I saw I saw most bands that played in and around Edinburgh. Uh, and then towards the the sixty-seven, sixty-eight, started to see a lot of bands that that uh, originated in Glasgow and uh, because they played at a club near where, near where I lived. So I saw the Pathfinders who became White Trash, I saw the Poets, I saw the Bow Weevils with the earliest Al Clemenson. So quite a lot of, quite a lot of great music live uh, at that time. And you worked at a record store as well, too, called Bruce's Record Shop. What was that experience like? Working at Bruce's was great. I, I mean, I had just, I had literally just left school. So this is 1969, and I, I became the original uh, Bruce's 
Saturday boy. So so I work worked there on Saturdays when I started going to college and worked there full time for a year when I dropped out and then went back into college to study something else, become a teacher. So I worked there between sixty nine and seventy four. And the first couple of years especially were, were absolutely magnificent. There was a really exciting time in Edinburgh. Uh, and it was a, an exciting time musically as well. And Bruce's was the centre of, of all kind, you know, of all kinds of things to do with the kind of to do with the counterculture and to do with arts as well. I mean, as an example, we um, we sold the tickets for the European premiere of the Easy Rider film. You know, so so we were involved in, in things that wasn't just um, you know selling Jethro Tull and the Beatles. Uh, so it was great. I really enjoy. I really enjoyed working at Bruce's and and you know with Lindsay Kent. Um, the, the choreographer, he had offices for a year, about five minutes walk from where uh, Bruce's was. And he and, the, and the, his, his cast would come in quite regularly into the shop. Uh, it was a bands who played live, you know, you know, main, you know, mainstream bands, sorry, not really mainstream bands, but popular bands such as the Moody Blues, for example, would come into the shop with the Edgar Broughton band in the shop. It was, it was um, quite a hub and it was quite, it was exciting times. Were you reading any music press at the time? Yeah, I mean, I was an avid, I was an avid reader of NME from about 1964 onwards, and then you know, then it would be NME, Meldamica, and Record Mirror, and then International Times and Early Rolling Stone. So you know, I was you know trying to hoover up as much information you know as possible about music at that time. Was there much of a Scottish music press at the time? There wasn't really. There, there were there were a few information magazines, such as there was one. The, the initial one in Edinburgh was called Press Ups, and then it was followed by another one called Cracker. And Cracker was a really really good paper. It was it came out every two weeks, so it was an entertainment guide, but it also covered local politics, it also covered music, it also covered the arts. There were other things like that dotted around in Scotland, but there wasn't initially during the beat boom. There were a couple of papers like Beat News, and there was. Showbeat Monthly, but they died out when the kind of pop thing, you know, began to die out the the mid sixties, and things moved to you know heavier music. So that that was really what was the the only things that were kind of happening in, in Scotland at that at that particular time. Was Bambalam your kind of way of filling that void, Brian? Yes and no. I mean, the, the thing about the thing about Bambalam was that that I'd written for Cracker and I had I had written a bit for a, for another magazine that a friend of mine had 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 started called Hot Wax. By the mid seventies, I mean there was still some there was still some good stuff coming out, still stuff that I really liked, but there wasn't the same volume of things which really interested me. And there were a lot of reissues starting to happen around about that time, which kind of rekindled interest in, in stuff which I had felt had been you know, kind of ignored. I mean, people still, musicians and, and, and a lot of the music press still looked upon what happened in the 1960s as kind of juvenilia, you know, simply because a lot of the bands, you know, such as, you know, the Kinks, the Who, the Stones and so on, still had big careers. So they kind of looked at what they did, you know, 10 years previously as being not quite as important, which we now kind of look upon it as being quite the opposite. So Bambalan was my was my way of trying to to bring this stuff you know to bring this stuff to the fore. I was heavily heavily you know inspired by Bomb's British Invasion issue. That was the one that really I thought, oh wait a minute, you know there, there is some great stuff here, and people are writing about it. You know I think I might try that as well. So that was really the, that was the main inspiration for for what I did with Bambalan. One thing that sets Bambalan apart from other zines of the time or this time 
is that it's painstakingly researched. And back then, coming by information on overlooked 60s groups, I imagine wasn't so easy. Can you talk a bit about your research process? I had quite a chunk of um, music papers, uh, which some some of which I kept, and others which I, which had began you know began to accumulate. So a lot of the a lot of it was first hand by simply sitting down. Right, who are we doing? Who are we doing this week? Right, we're going to do the downliner set. Okay, let's go through the papers and you know find when find when things were issued, and that also helped supply with with, with you know with artwork for the for the for the magazine as well. Um, and I also drew on on my record collection, and I also drew on. I mean, there were other other great magazines like the, the Rock Marketplace, Alan Betrock, You know, um, I mean, he did some he did some fabulous stuff, and so and I mean, you know, I, I corresponded with Alan. You know, and I th- you know, so there were a couple of times when I said, "Look, do you mind if you've done you've done an article on?" I'm trying to think of one. Uh, the move, the, the the move one was you know, the the roots of the move. Uh, I said, do you mind if I, you know, if I if I use some of the information, you know, that you got? And so, as long as you said you know got it from him, then then that was fine. So that so that was a there were like minds. There was obviously Greg Shaw with Bomb, Alan Betrop, um, were, were 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 kind of the main you know the main ones. I'm also curious to hear your thoughts on your writing style in Bambalam. I think it was John Savage once likened it to haiku in its simplicity <laughs> and elegance. I, I, I'm always very indebted to John for his kind words. I have to say, I, I, I actually didn't really think of it in, in those terms. I, I mean, one of the things I was conscious of with Bambalam was I didn't want it to be nostalgic. You know, I didn't want it to. I didn't want, although I did think that you know <laughs> something else by the Kinks was a far better album than Sleepwalker. You know, I wasn't wanting to, to you know to, to to you know to say you should you know this, it was far better in those days than it is now. You know, it was just different. So I was conscious that I that I didn't want to go down that particular editorial route. But I was also, I mean, I was and still am a massive fan of Richard Brodigan. Uh, I love his writing, his poetry, and and, and his novels. And so it was kind of well. <laughs> let's let's try and let's try and write a wee bit like <laughs> Richard Brodigan might have approached the pretty things. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, not quite as crass as that, but I was I was hugely hugely influenced by Richard by Richard Brodigan. I mean, I, I still think he's a wonderful writer. So that that obviously that obviously filtered through uh, as well. And, I, and and the other kind of reason was I wanted to to write about why. Something sounded good rather than just say, you know, this album came out such and such a time. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to try and try and explain why it was worth listening to, not just simply because I happened to think so, but why I happened to think so. So that was so that was really the the main thing. But that's that's really thinking about it really hard in <laughs> several years after after the fact. I don't think I quite thought about it quite so in such in such detail uh, at the time. The mag had a very personal feel to it, and I think one of the reasons is you had no interviews and no contributors at all. Yeah, yeah, um, and, and, yeah. I mean, there weren't cont- contributors because I was selfish. <laughs> I'll be per- perfectly honest. I, I just thought, well, you know, I think I can say what I want to say about this particular, you know, this particular thing, you know, uh, by myself. Interviews, I, I, I always think interviews are a double-edged sword. Yes, it can be fascinating and you can get lots of, obviously, glean wonderful information from people. At, at, at that particular time, again, I mean, 
bands were no, you know, and uh, bands weren't wildly interested in talking about the past. They wanted to talk about what they were doing at that at that particular time. People, you know, and, and certainly as the years go by, people tend to tell the story that's been told rather than offer new insights, you know, because the they, memories are a funny thing, you know. And uh, so sometimes I think it's much better to go back to source, you know, to what was said about, you know, like taking, taking an example, what the Hollies really thought of their version of If I Needed Someone when they issued If I Needed Someone rather than what they thought about it, you know, five years later. What was your readership like? I mean, it was international. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I now have a, a very long and lasting friendship with Sid Griffin from the Long Riders. And, you know, he picked up a copy of the magazine in Tower in Los Angeles where he was working and he got in contact and that was how we got to know each other. So it, it, it went went you know <laughs> to various places in the in the US and in Canada uh, and 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 in Europe and and in the UK the readership it was interesting i think i think it was possibly two the people who bought the magazine in the UK were probably you know of of my age of you know on uh, roundabout but i think a lot of the people who bought it in the sh- in the shops could, might have been slightly younger uh, because I was I was surprised at how many people who who weren't subscribers, for example, you know, who 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 I spoke to in later years, who were perhaps five years, maybe even ten years younger, who who discovered it and were introduced to these things um, through through the magazine. So it was it was quite quite wide, quite you know, I was I was quite surprised at, at how varied the readership uh, actually was. Why did you decide to stop at issue fourteen? There was never really a conscious decision to stop, to, to, to be honest. And, and somewhere, somewhere in the vaults, I've got the layout for issue 15 because I always used to start by sticking all the pictures down and then working out where, where all the text would go in. <laughs> so I wanted, I wanted, I wanted to, surprisingly, I wanted to see what it would look like before, you know, before I actually put the text in. So, so I, I had I had full planned, and it was going to have uh, the band on the cover because I was going to do uh, up to music from Big Pink, of kind of Robbie Roberts, Robbie Robertson stuff, and it was going to go into kind of Greenwich Village. I was going to do David Blues, kind of folk rocky type type thing. That that was that was the plan. And really, what what happened was that I got made redundant uh, on about three occasions in the space of about two years. Uh, so so financially, I, you know, it would it would have been difficult it would have been difficult to do it. And then I started to write for uh, I started I began doing doing sleeve notes while I was doing Bambalam, but I, I started doing more sleeve notes after I got made redundant. I started to write for Record Collector. And suddenly, I found I found myself, you know, I've got a career <laughs> here, and and although I kept thinking, right, I must sit back and I must, you know, resurrect Bamba and get get it out. Just time time went by, and it 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 was it was just after a little while, you just thought, well, is there really much point in doing it now? Because the the idea of communicating my enthusiasm for something is now being taken up by writing sleeve notes and writing articles. So that fulfilled the, the kind of idea that I'd had for Bam Balam. So as I say, there wasn't a conscious decision to stop. It just kind of drifted away. <laughs> you found other venues for your energy. And yeah, basically, yes. Yeah, basically, yes. And and and, and I mean, it, between about 80, 84 and about 1992, I mean, you know, I made my living, you know, as a, as a freelance writer writing about 1960s and 1970s music so are there any sleeve notes that you're especially proud of 
I've got a great fondness for for my for my creation sleeve notes because that was the, you know that was the one that, that that really changed and that was actually done uh, via an interview as well bizarrely enough just to just to completely contradict what I said five minutes ago um, <laughs> I, I, I did a, a long interview with Kenny Pickett which was which which was great. And I'm, I have great memories of Sid Barrett Opal because not only you know did did I do the sleeve notes, um, Phil Smee and I actually worked in the uh, in the compilation and, and post production of the tracks that were on it, which was fabulous. I mean to sit in Abbey Road and listen to those things coming over the, the big speakers, and also to listen to some of the Pink Floyd uh, unissued material coming over the speakers, uh, was was uh, quite an experience. <laughs> yeah, I'd say to have a hand in that would be something very special. Yeah, it was. It was. Can you talk about some of the one-off fanzines that you did away from the numbers, Smashed Blocked? Yeah, well, Smash Blocked and Son of Smash Blocked were ways of t- trying to help finance Bambalam because I was able to do them on, a, on, on an old-fashioned Gestetna. Uh, <laughs> machine uh, and, and crank them out that way, so it didn't. It didn't actually cost me anything other than the cost of the ink and to get the actual covers printed. And it was a way of, of covering bands and and records, which which might not you know get a full a full thing in Bambalam itself. Um, so that was the idea behind that. Away from the numbers was was a was a one off punk fanzine which I which I did in in nineteen seventy seven, you know I didn't stop listening to music in nineteen you know in, in nineteen seventy four, uh, and and I was certainly I certainly embraced the changes and the possibilities that punk offered, the issue of Bambalam before that which which was which was the one with the the Groovies and Big Star and Dwight Twilley Band that was as modern as as Bambalam as Bambalam got as it were. And that was and that was to kind of reflect the excitement that I was feeling that, that things were changing, but I didn't want to turn Bambalam into a contemporary zine. I lost interest in Bomp when it did that. I lost interest in Zigzag when it did that because it it, it somehow didn't didn't work uh, the way that they had you know the way that they had before. So although I, I think I think in the next the next issue. Uh, which would have been the next issue of Bambalan would have been the one uh, that had Mercy Beat and and Scott and Scottish rock and pop in it. That was I was kind of trying to to mirror what was happening, you know, in seventy six and seventy seven by you know com- not comparing it by showing just how other things began uh, in the previous decade. And then I wrote a bit. I mean, I was probably too kind to the Clash and the Jam. Um, and 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 that, uh, but I was I was enthusiastic about what was happening. That's my excuse. But uh, uh, so so away from the numbers was 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 a way, and that's why I chose the name away from the numbers. It was away from you know cataloging, and it was away from you know it was just simply this is the kind of stuff that you know these are some of the Scottish bands that are happening just now. This is some of the records that I've been listening to when this has been happening. It was done on a Gestetner, and again you know it helped finance Bambalam. Were you up on any of the first generation UK punk scenes? Mark Perry of Sniffing Glue credits Bambalam as a key influence on him. Yeah, I, I was, I was, I was really, I was really quite, quite chuffed. I mean, I, I met Mark a couple of times. I, I mean, I, I was down in London quite frequently, even before I became a, a full-time scribe, as it were. And I met Mark a couple of times, and, and you know, we had really good conversations about music. And, and I mean, I, I liked ATV. This is what I was saying about a, a generation that knew Bambalam that I didn't really know about. There was a great shop in Parade Street, Paddington, called Bizarre Records, which was run by a guy called Larry Debay. French guy with an enormous green beard, 
who was the uh, the British distributor for Skydog Records, the French label with the you know the MC5 and the Flaming Groovies and stuff like that. That was one of the kind of earlier content. You know, it, was, it predated Rough Trade, uh, and it was at the same time that Rock On still had the stalls. And a lot of a lot of the musicians who would go into punk bands used to go there uh, simply because of the great stock they had, uh, the Damned in particular. And and they, so uh, you know, I they picked up Bambalandi as well. You know, so so it it was it was that link. You know, and the same kind of link they had with Mark. Um, that that was that was really you know quite interesting. And I liked the fact that. It's the people who were making music contemporary, contemporary, which I enjoyed, also appreciated, you know, what was, you know, what had been happening previously. Yeah, I think it was appropriate for him to acknowledge that, you know, punk scenes didn't just come out of a vacuum, and also this music as well didn't just emerge out of thin air. There were these precursors in the '60s and early '70s that you were covering in Bambalem. Well, exactly. You know, I mean, I, I, I saw it just basically as a, as a lineage. And, you know, there was so much happened in the 60s musically. I mean, there were so many different things, which which a lot of things, you know, a lot of styles and a lot of ideas that, that didn't actually reach full fruition. And what was exciting about, you know, about that was that the bands were going back and picking up on things which which had maybe you know, had a, a wee flourish. You know, in 1967, and then we're taking it somewhere else. And I was really excited by what was happening, and and you know, once you hit stuff like you know, like television's Little Johnny Jewel and the early Perubu stuff, and then the Fall, uh, Wire. I mean, these these records are great. I mean, these records to me still stand up. You know, beside the best of of, of anything, which you know that that I enjoy listening to. Can you tell us about your association with Zoom Records and the group Simple Minds? After I stopped working with Bruce's, I mean, I, I kind of lost contact with Bruce for, for a couple of years. Bruce Finley was the was the, the guy who owned Bruce's record shop with his brother Brian. We made contact again about 1976, and then and he said, you know, that uh, he was quite keen I would get back to work with him, and, and I said, no, I'm going to stick to teaching. I'm I'm fine. But by the fall by the following year, and because things were so exciting, I was beginning to get a wee bit itchy. Bruce had started Zoom Records uh, as an independent, but he then got a, a marketing and distribution deal with Arista. I was on holiday you know our long summer holiday so i you know helped out in the office with various bits and pieces and then i, I actually i went to see simple minds live and this was the first time this was early 78 this was the first time that they played in edinburgh although friends in glasgow had been saying how good they were which is one of the reasons why i went along to see them i thought they were superb and i knew that bruce was was looking for other things for the label and so I phoned him up and, and said, look, I've just seen Simple Minds. I said, they're, they're, they're absolutely brilliant. And he said, oh, funnily enough, they, they, they dropped in a tape. But because he was so bound up in what was happening with, with Zoom and the, the launch, he, he said, look, I can't do anything with it. And I said, well, it's something to think about. You should try and catch them live. So he so he went through to Glasgow to see them at the splendidly named Mars Bar. And he loved them as well. And so began the courtship. And Bruce said, a month or so later, Bruce said, look, he's fancy coming back to work. I said, look, if we're going to sign Simple Minds, I'll come back. He says, well, well I'm going to give it a good try. I said, right, okay. So that was how I ended up working at Zoom. And I worked there for the uh, best part of two years as a press officer and various other bits and pieces. And so I was with Work With Simple Minds during their first uh, the first two albums. But then the Zoom deal fell through. Arista decided that they were not going to release any more Zoom singles. With the deal being finished, then half my wages were no longer being paid. And because uh, half my wages were no longer being paid, the other half, which would be paid by the Bruce's, Bruce's record shop, the, the managing directors at that point, because Bruce and Brian were now virtually employees in their own 
uh, in their own shop uh, had been taken over. They said, well, we're not going to pay the wages anyway. anyway. So I was then out of work. And, and so that was, that was the end of my uh, association with uh, Simple Minds. Can you talk about your first book, All That Ever Mattered, the story of Scottish rock and pop? Yeah, that that was a kind of long, took quite a while for it all to come together. And it really started off as inspired by BBC Scotland radio series, a six-part radio series called Beatstalking. And, and I did some research for that. Uh, and so kind of amassed various bits of knowledge to, to add to the already arcane nonsense that was stored in my head. And uh, and so the, the, the idea was that, that perhaps the BBC might pick up on publishing on publishing the book. And initially there was some interest and then they decided they didn't want to do it. And, and I tried a couple of other publishers, but nobody seemed to be really interested in doing something that was specifically Scottish. So it just kind of drifted to one side. I'd, I'd done about half of it. Uh, probably up until you know, and, and, until the sort of Alex Harvey band started punk round about that that point, and then it just was was put to one side. This was this was about nineteen eighty six, would have been nineteen eighty seven. And then I did a, quite a lot of work for the Guinness Encyclopedia of Rock, you know, which was published in the in the nineties, but took about about three years to to accumulate. And when that was finished. Well, the work on that was finished, they, they, they kind of asked, well, what else are you going to do? I said, well, I've got this manuscript hanging about, <laughs> you know, about the history of Scottish rock and pop. And one of the guys who, who worked at Guinness, who, who published the, the encyclopedia, was, uh, was really keen on the idea. And he pushed hard to, to get it past the, the, uh, the Guinness board. And they, so that was how it, it came about. And, and uh, so it basically... And uh, then did the second half of it, which was, you know, punk up until about the, the late 1980s. What was the reception like to the book? The book got, got quite a good reception, I have to say. It got, got good reviews and was very welcome, uh, particularly up here, because there's never there hadn't been anything, you know, on, on, on Scottish rock and pop and on the history of it, and certainly to, uh, to that extent. So it, it did well, but the major problem was that, that um, between commissioning the book and publishing the book, Guinness uh, had a change of board, uh, and the, the guy who was my champion was no longer there. So they launched it. To, to a great fanfare up in Scotland, but the, you couldn't really get it anywhere else in the in the UK. I, I, to friends in London who were struggling to get hold of it, so distribution was poor, and so it probably didn't do quite as well as as the as the reviews had said. You know, the, 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 the praise the reviews had given it, but it was certainly well received uh, by by those who got a copy. <laughs> Have you given any thought to revising it? Um, well, not not. Specifically, about five years after it went out of print, I was approached by another publisher who, who suggested that they might like to do a reprint, but to really just to, to tack on another chapter at the end rather than, you know, go back into the book again. And I wasn't particularly happy with doing that. I, you know, I thought, no, I, I don't really want to do that. I want to bring everything up to date, you know, for the, over the past, well, it would, have been, it would have been six or eight years by that time. So that fell by the wayside. And then, it, then there was another possibility of it coming out again uh, a few years after that, but it had the same problem in that, you know, people were keen to, to, to maybe to put out another book, but they didn't really want me to go right back to the very beginning, which to me kind of made sense. I mean, one of the main things about the, about the book was it when, when I wrote it, you know, the, the, there was no internet, you know, it was good old-fashioned detective work. And of course, since then, you know, the, the amount of information that's out there is, is huge. And, and as the years go by, it becomes more difficult to, to sort of say, well, we could we could republish it. You could republish it as it was, 
uh, and just say this is the history of Scottish rock and pop up to 1990 and go back in and, and update various things and correct any errors or whatever. But I think, to be perfectly honest, if you were going to do it now, you'd, you'd really need to be thinking about three volumes because, after all, it's it's now you know 30 years since between the book finishing and uh, and now which is almost the same time as the amount of time that the book itself covers so uh, it would i think i think to do the the history justice and as i said given the amount of information that's now out there you would really need to think of a multi-volume rather than a single volume were there any bands or labels that were left out of the book that approached you and said hey where's our spot in this not particularly. I mean, people in Glasgow <laughs> felt that it was there was far too much on Edinburgh bands, and and, and people in Edinburgh thought there was far too much in Glasgow on Glasgow bands. So I think I must have hit a balance there <laughs> somewhere. I mean, in, in retrospect, that there's probably a couple of things that I might have done a little bit more. Glasgow's Hellfire Club, which was a kind of pivotal club in the in the early eighties, and in Edinburgh, you know, you you, you had the the Onion Cellar, which was a, another pivotal club, and these these weren't really covered. But the bands who played there were. But it might have been nice to have gone into that a little bit more. But no, in general, I think people were, yeah, you know, people were quite pleased with the scope that it covered, and and the fact that there was a decent balance between people who had success and people who perhaps only managed a, a few cult singles. Can you tell us about your most recent book, Cosmopolitan Scum, Edinburgh, the Arts and the Counterculture? Well, again, this is this is a book that's been hanging about in my head for <laughs> for, for quite a while. Being born and brought up in Edinburgh and it being a, a, a city which has that particular period left an indelible stamp on everything that I'm interested in, you know, since then. I wanted to do a kind of a, a kind of artistic tribute to, to the city and at the same time show how a lot of the people who were, you know, movers and shakers, as it were, in the early 60s in Edinburgh, uh, they moved down to London and were, uh, and were an important part of the kind of counterculture down there. And so the, initially the idea of the book was it would finish about, uh, you know, round about the end of the 60s. And, and, and if you read the book and there's a, there's a piece where the Arts Lab in London, you know, I mark the closure of the Arts Lab and point out how that closure ended a line that went right back to the late 50s in Edinburgh. And that was where I initially I thought that it would that, that it would finish. As I began to write it, it took off, it just took off a, a mind of its own. And I, and, and I thought, well, it would be nice to do something on fast product you know, because of the influence that they had, not only musically, but also uh, in the way of graphic arts and design and the whole kind of concept of marketing, which was which was quite different to what, you know, the standard ideas. So uh, that spread into that then by going into the 70s, then I went into all the things which were happening in Edinburgh in the 70s as far as links with art and uh, literature and, and plays coming from Eastern Europe, as well as connections with, with art movements like Fluxus, uh, and with the Viennese activists, and so I, I, it, it then grew, and, and then as I, as I began to move through the through the seventies, then the eighties, well, I might, there's, there's still there's still things happening, and then I thought, well, I can't really do something that's going to involve literature and then, but and not have something about Irvin Welsh and train spotting, so that pulled me into <laughs> you know further and further until eventually it came, um, you know, basically almost up to date. So. As, as I said, it, it became became a bit of a you know a bigger beast than I originally than I originally intended. But I think it gives a I hope it gives a a good overview of the things which were happening in Edinburgh. You know, since the festival, the Edinburgh Festival first started. 
It sounds like the working on the book enlarged your appreciation for Edinburgh's contributions to the arts. It did actually. The book it does tell you things, you know, does say things that perhaps have been not widely known over the, you know, uh, over the years. But what it does do is it tries to pull information and, and ideas and people, you know, writing that people have done about the city all into one place, which it hasn't had before. You know, the, the Edinburgh, you know, the Edinburgh folk scene has been in books by, you know, about Bert Jansch or about the Incredible String Band. And, and so to, to pull that back from, from, from that kind of place and put it alongside what was, you know, what was happening in the poetry scene in Edinburgh, you know, and, and things like that, puts it into its founding context, as it were, rather, you know, and then how it became, you know, internationally uh, known rather rather than being part of simply of you know the folk genre or the poetry genre or or the film genre the edinburgh film festival gets coverage in the book and it's one of the most well-known film festivals in the world you quote the american filmmaker john houston as saying the only film festival worth a damn is edinburgh what do you think sets it apart one of the things at the time, the the, the the film festival is actually a very long going film festival. I mean, it started at the same time as the, as the uh, official festival, so it goes back to to the immediate post war years, nineteen forty six. So it had established itself already, but it was it was quite although it, uh, it it was quite a traditional festival in that it followed kind of the, the, the accepted cinematography history. You know, the the great you know the Eisensteins of this world, and so on and so on. But by the nineteen, but by the nineteen sixties, it, it had the, there was a new artistic director called Murray Gregor, and he brought in a couple of uh, called uh, Linda Miles and David and David Will, both of whom were film fanatics, but also had an appreciation of film in a much wider context. So it was not only they not only had a, a different taste to in, in films to 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 the to the main the main people on the committee, but they they also wanted to put things into a cultural sense as well. So they they champ they championed things such as, as Roger Corman, Samuel Fuller. They championed French cinema, but they also would do something like like a season of films by Douglas Sirk, and, and you know, and talk about how melodrama told you something about, about the culture, and 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 it was this that, that made it quite different to the other to the to the other film festivals, and it was being run by by I mean they were. They, both David and Linda were quite young. They were students, but their enthusiasm for film in, in its wider context made it a different kind of festival. The the years between, say, 1968 and 1975 were, were, were really very, very revolutionary in, in, in how you approached the appreciation of film and, and cinema itself. They sound a bit ahead of their time. Very much so. Very much so. Yes, definitely. And left, a, you know, an influence. I mean, a huge influence. Although David eventually dropped out, I mean, Linda continued to be an important force in, in UK and international cinema. You devote a bit of space in the book to Scotland's prog rock legacy. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, Scotland, Scottish music went almost jumped from kind of beat and beat type uh, music straight into kind of heavier music. It didn't, there wasn't really a, a kind of psychedelic, a psychedelic Scottish scene. We didn't have a kind of interstellar overdrive or, you know, any, anything like that. So, the, so it really, it became, it became a kind of heavy, a heavier sound quite quickly. So you had bands like Writing on the Wall, for example, who, had, who were initially a band called The Jury played soul stuff and then they began to write their own material and gradually got heavier and heavier you know music using Hammond organ etc etc 
And then there was a band called One Two Three, uh, who were quite a remarkable group. And and, and they, from from very early on, they were a three piece, no guitar. It was organ, bass, and drums. But they would rearrange quite imaginatively songs which you perhaps knew. For example, like the Zombie, she's not there. They were never hugely popular because you couldn't dance to it, you know. So, so they 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 moved, they moved down to London and got a residency at the Marquee Club and found themselves being the the kind of toast of the of the London club scene because because other musicians would come and watch them and so they, they you know Keith Emerson of the Nice used to watch them very closely partly because Billy Ritchie had the unusual thing of standing up to, to play the organ something which Keith Emerson later adapted and and also they did an incredible version a couple of Simon and Garfunkel things but they did they did an amazing version of America which um which which members uh, of uh, yes <laughs> or the or, or yes to be uh, took note of and, and they used the kind of same arrangement for for their version of it. They had an, a big but unheralded uh, influence on on what was happening. Now whether you whether that's a good or a bad thing <laughs> is, is you know is, is down to is down to personal taste. Uh, but it's the 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 one two three were especially important and you know and the and the influence on on what happened on on the major you know the, the London. Uh, and then obviously UK uh, progressive music scene. Scotland were, were, were perhaps more adept at a kind of harder edge rather than heavy, hard edge music, which you would have heard in, in people like Stone the Crows and, and Nazareth, who were obviously you know very very uh, big in Canada and, uh, and and so that was that was more the kind the more the kind and then you know ultimately with the, with the sensational Alex Harvey band, you know who were you know unlike anybody else. You alluded earlier to a rivalry between Edinburgh and Glasgow. How real is that? Well, I think it's. it's I mean, it, it's not unlike you know anywhere else where you have two you know you have two major cities. You know, you, you think of Liverpool and Manchester, for example. And I, I don't know what I don't know what Canada is, but but you know perhaps Montreal and Toronto. You know, there is, you know, there is, there's a kind of a city patriotism, and 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 so you, you tend to be a bit edgy about about what's happening, you know, in, in the other city. Glasgow and Edinburgh, I, I mean, it, it goes across everything in Glasgow, between Glasgow and Edinburgh. It's not just it's not just music, but kind of honing it into music. I, 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 Glasgow, um, Glasgow was, I don't know, traditional is perhaps not the right word, but I think. Glasgow groups tended to stay closer to the heritage of, of, of music that inspired them. So you had great, you had soul influence bands going right through, you know, from from the sixties right through to the to the seventies and eighties, and 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 also when they, the the kind of independent type groups, they they were they were influenced by or, or took took ideas from bands like you know <laughs> as, as I've said, as I've said bands who tended to begin with the letter B, um, such as. Such as you know, big big star Buffalo Springfield, um, the Beach Boys, and obviously the the Beatles. Edinburgh bands tended to be a bit more a bit more uh, a bit more playful. They might have the same influences, but they tended they tended to be a bit more playful with them. However, having said that, I mean I mean the the, the 1980s especially, and as far as the independent you know uh, scene is concerned. So great cooperation between the between the two cities, you know, largely through Stephen Pastel of the Pastels. But you know, labels like Fifty Third and Third had bands from Edinburgh, had bands from Glasgow, had bands from uh, bands from Washington with the beat with beat happening. So so it had a quite a cosmopolitan you know sense to it. And also you had two clubs. You had the, the Onion Cellar in, in Edinburgh, and you had Splash One in Glasgow. 
uh, and a lot of the same bands would play in, in those clubs. So although there's there, there can be there can be rivalry, then you know there, there can be close cooperation as well. What are you up to these days? Um, not a lot. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I really stopped, stopped writing about music as a way of earning my trust. Really in the 1990s, I, I felt I'd said everything I really needed to say and writing was becoming, you know, almost like telling the same story, but just, you know, dropping in the names to suit, you know, what had happened, you know, like, you know, they all fell out with the bass player and, and you know, the singer's an egotist. Um, you know, it, it was it tended to be you know kind of the same the, the same story, and also I had felt that, that you know that, that this information was now widely disseminated. It wasn't the same as a, as you know informing people about things which you know which 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 they may not have known about. I, I mean, I still occasionally got asked to do things and, and have done things, and I, and I, I also helped out at the um, exhibition of, of Scottish rock and pop artifacts uh, that was at uh, Edinburgh Museum a couple of years ago. A major exhibition, and you know they, they they dipped into my book for ideas, and had a few meetings with them, and so on and so forth. But I've also been I've also been uh, helping the drummer and the writing on the wall put together a biography. Jimmy has has kept a, an amazing archive of photographs, so he's been trying to piece all them together. And I've written a kind of introduction, come interview with him. That may well be out sometime this year. But apart from that, I'm just enjoying retiring and, and actually getting down to listen to some of the things I've accumulated over the years that I've not heard about the past 20 years. <laughs> Can we expect a Bambalam anthology? Mm, no, I don't think so. Uh, I, 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 I kind of like leaving things where they are. You know, if, if somebody wanted to do it, then fine. But I mean, I, I think I think it served its purpose at the time. The, the problem when you kind of look at it now, it, it's... It, it served its purpose, as it were, uh, all, all those years ago. There's far more information about these bands available now. It, looking at it now in retrospect, it's more of a timepiece than something that, that has a has a longevity with you know within it or a relevance today. I think things suit the environment and the and the times that they were created. And although I I, I really enjoy things from the past, I, I'm not a believer in, in in you know bringing them all back up, and certainly not and certainly not bringing them up to date. Agreed. <laughs> Brian, I think I'm out of questions. Unless, is there anything else you would like to add? Did Did we cover strange things are happening? No, let, that's a good. Yeah, I don't think we covered that last time either. Can you tell us about strange things are happening? That was a zine you were involved with in the 80s and 90s. That's right. Strange things are happening was a, was was a, a magazine that that, uh, that I edited along with. Um, Phil Smee from Bam Caruso Records, um, and Phil, Phil and I worked on a lot of different projects um, and a lot of reissues, you know, ranging from the, the obscure to the to the absolutely absolutely wonderful. Um, it was a great time, and we came up with the we actually came up with the idea of, of having of, of having Bam Caruso books because we thought, well, you know, we're writing all this stuff and we're designing all these things. It would be nice to maybe have some theme books. So we we had ideas for uh, British folk rock, the book on British folk rock. We had ideas for uh, Bleaker and McDougall. We had ideas for the uh, the blues boom. There were six altogether, and we were going to do them twelve by twelve. So so you would put them on your shelf, you know, beside beside your albums. And we thought, right, okay. Let, let's see if we can get a deal. Let's go to Frankfurt. So we headed off to the Frank. So we headed off to the Frankfurt Book Fair, uh, and and spent 
two two rather fruitless days <laughs> going round every publisher in the in the known world, uh, trying to see if anyone was was interested in doing it. And and we we didn't we didn't have any luck. Uh, we had a great time, um, but we but we had we had no luck in in, in in finding someone who would do it. So when we came back, we thought, well, we've kind of started writing all these bits and pieces. Why don't we do a magazine? So that was how that was how Strange Things came about. Uh, so it covered. I mean, Strange Things it was was great fun. It was great fun to do. I mean, we, we you know we not only covered music, we covered. We, you know, we covered film, we covered Kelvin, we did The Man From U.N.C.L.E., we did all kinds, you know, we did stuff on horror genre writers, did lots of, lots of, lots of different things that, you know, not, not just, you know, not just music, although music was the kind of the, the, the core of it. But unfortunately, the distribution was a, was a problem, not so much in, in getting it, well, getting it into shops was difficult uh, because it was a bit of a cartel in the, in the U.K. as far as distribution is concerned. But the costs were prohibitive, you know, to, to as far as distribution was concerned, and you didn't get paid until you had about until you got to about the third issue. So we so we did run in or Phil because it was Phil who financed it. Found himself in a you know in a bit of a financial bind as far as as far as continuing to do it was concerned, and so we we had, we had to we had to stop doing it, which was a shame. I mean, it was it was great, and it, we do know that the, the likes of Mojo Magazine because the the guys who founded Mojo, Mojo said so. The, the, the ideas that we had there were, you know, a bit of an inspiration into what they did later. The early module was a was a very good magazine, although I'm, I'm not sure I'd give you tuppence for it now, but never mind, that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> the coverage sounds very eclectic, and what I've read about the magazine is that you guys were covering obscure cult artists from the 70s and 80s who now are selling Volkswagen ads like Nick Drake and Kevin Ayers, but back then were had been undiscovered. Yeah, they, they were. I mean, they were. I mean, it, 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 I mean, Phil's a massive. I mean, you know, Phil's a massive music fan as well as as, as anyone who, who's seen his work and and, and, and and listened to his work knows. And and we did consciously try to. I mean, uh, the, the uh, another one of the guys who you know, um, uh, Richard Norris was also he was working at at Bam Caruso at the time. Richard claims a wee bit more involvement in in strange things these days than than he did have. Because he, he he then he left Bam Caruso fairly soon into into Strange Things, because he was because of his music career uh, as as a, as a member of the Grid and and he's since become you know very very successful and good luck to him. But Richard's Richard's involvement was 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 important. I mean it was it was through him that we we had a piece on Kathy Acker, and it it was it was through him that we that we had a piece on very early Creation Records, and so he brought a, another perspective to the magazine. Yeah, I'm really proud of what we what we did with Strange Things. I think it was a it was a it was a good mag, and certainly you know for its time was quite trailblazing. Many thanks to Brian for his time and to our friend Lindsay Hutton for hooking us up. The history of Scottish rock and pop. Brian's first book is out of print, but copies show up regularly online. Cosmopolitan Scum is available from Amazon and is highly highly recommended. You're also encouraged to snatch up issues of Bambalam and Strange Things are happening whenever they pop up on eBay. I'm also happy to share some scans with you too. You can message me on Twitter at rockritpod. Thanks so much for checking us out. If you like what you hear, please tell a friend and leave a review. Take good care and see you in a couple weeks.